So uh, Genesis 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can, you can count them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites. Jesus, just uh, guide Nate in his speaking tonight and just um, help us all have ears to hear. Um, thank you for the night, Father. Amen. <coughs> Pray only because I say. All right. Um, welcome to the outpost. It's been, uh, been a little while since I have been here with you guys. We've had a great semester, Jacob and Brent sharing a little mini uh, series that they've been doing, but tonight uh, I get to do the last mini-series that we have for this spring semester, and we are looking at Jesus in the Old Testament, which is kind of a strange topic. When the, when the staff first presented this to us uh, last semester when we were looking and thinking about what to talk about this semester, and this topic came up, it's kind of interesting because on one hand, Jesus is never articulated in the Old Testament. They don't have the language yet of, of the concept of the Trinity that would come out after Jesus' incarnation. And, and we don't see him. They don't understand this idea. And so on one hand, he's nowhere. And yet, on the other hand, he is everywhere in the Old Testament. That, that there are hints at him, and, and we're actually going to get into that over the next few weeks. They call him Christophanes. They're, in hindsight, we realize this is the part of God that is expressing himself in this story, in this situation, that Christ is showing up long before his incarnation. This was not something unusual or strange for him, whether it's in the Garden of Eden, walking in the cool of night, or in the fire with Moses. Jesus keeps showing up. And so we realize in the Bible, he is the hero of the story. To us, in our understanding of what does it mean to be a Jesus follower, he is not just 
a part of the story of the Bible. He is the climax. He is the story. Everything is culminating, leading up to, building up to that moment that we're going to be talking a little bit about tonight. And so we're looking at this passage in Genesis chapter 15. And, and you might kind of ask, well, why are we looking at this story? And kind of two reasons. One, this account, as, as strange and peculiar as it seems to us at first reading, and we'll get into that, it is actually maybe the most clear articulation of the gospel in all of the Old Testament. Maybe even all of the Bible is possible. That, that the gospel message is being articulated here. And so I want to highlight this story at the get-go because I want to highlight this one point. That the Bible is not a grouping of disconfigured, disconnected stories that are sort of connected in this idea of God. But that this is an ongoing, progressive account of the God of the universe reaching out to humanity, bringing us back into our humanity. That from the very beginning, this guy Abram, who would become the father of the nation Israel, who would be center stage in the story of Jesus, was from the very beginning articulating, this is my plan. This was always my plan. And it's interesting, we in our generation right now are, on one hand, we have more access. We have more access to resources, to, to concordances, to biblical literature. We can, we can read all kinds of accounts and interpretations and understandings. On one hand, we have more access to biblical information than any generation in history, and yet we arguably are the least biblically literate of any generation in the recent past. That even though we have more access, it doesn't mean we're always in tune with what is the Bible actually saying. And so my hope is through this is to maybe highlight that this is not disconnected, that this is an ongoing progression, that we should recognize that God has been fighting for you for thousands of years. Even in this story, he was thinking of you. The other reason why I want to highlight this story is because in this story, we see Abram saying the same thing that we say all the time. But God, how do I know? How do I know? I, I think maybe I believe in you. I'm not sure. I, you know, I believe in you. But I don't know if I can trust you, you know, with like my future, my relationships, my, my money, my time, my energy. How do I know? It's one thing to say, God, I believe in you, when all that it means to me, all that it matters to me is, is sort of like saying, you know, I believe that the, the rings of Saturn are ice crystals and rock left over from comets, pa comets passing by, right? Sort of, kind of an interesting piece of information, maybe, but really irrelevant to my life and my decisions, right? Totally irrelevant. And so often we treat faith that way. Yes, I believe in God. What does that have to do with your life right now? I don't know. But here's Abram, and he has given up his whole future. He gave up his family. He gave up his future, his culture, his people group, his land. And, and he is saying, God, I'm giving up everything. How do I know that you're going to be trustworthy? And that uncertainty, that doubt, whether it's wrestling with God, are you real? Or God, are you really faithful in my situation. We're always asking that question, aren't we? God, how do I know? And a little bit of what we're going to be talking about tonight is looking at that question. God, how do we know? And so we're going to be looking at that. There's an interesting account in, Re in Romans chapter 4 that highlights this passage, actually, and kind of 
accentuates something of what we're talking about tonight. I'm going to read that, this passage as well, and then we're going to get into uh, some of this story. This story is fascinating. I hope you're excited because I'm excited to actually share this story. This story is fascinating. But I want to start by looking at this story through the eyes of the author of Romans. And in Romans chapter 4, verse 18, it says, Against all hope, Abraham, so Abram was this guy, that was his name. God changed his name to Abraham. So you'll kind of hear this interchange. But Abraham, in hope, believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. We just read that. Without wearing, weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Not exactly the prime child-rearing age, right? And Sarah's womb was also dead. She couldn't have children. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. Here he is. God, there is absolutely, this makes no sense, your promise to me. And yet I'm going to trust you but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. This is why it matters to us. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Okay, so there's a lot here. We're going to kind of get into a a couple points of this Romans interpretation of this Genesis story. But the first thing I want you to highlight, I want you to look at, is this. Abram was persuaded. Abram was persuaded. You know, if I understood faith the same way that our world understands faith, I don't think I would want to be a person of faith. Honestly, because the way the world thinks of faith is this. Check your mind out the door. Don't have any critical thought or assessment. Don't assess truth. Just accept what we say as truth. Right? This is, that's kind of the way the world thinks of faith. You just have to blindly obey. Now, there is a sense of, like, what you trust. Sometimes we trust the Lord even when we don't understand the context. Abram does not understand how this is going to happen. But he does trust the Lord, there is faith, not that is blind, but based on the experience and what is going to happen in this story. The point is, Abram was persuaded. He wasn't blind, he was convinced. And, and when we come into faith, we can ask that question. When we come into questions of doubt, and I'm not sure, God, we can ask, God, how can I know? And we can be persuaded. And what I want to look at, the way that Abram was persuaded was kind of in two ways. One, there is something that Abram did. And then there is something that God did. And I want to look at both tonight for a little bit of time at this time. What did Abram do that was, that in his life brought him to this place where he was able to be persuaded in his doubts? And what was God doing that really sealed the deal for him? So let's, let's get into that. Let's look at that. You know, in the outpost, we believe in a God who has the ability to have deep relationship with you. And, and is a God that is knowable. We're not saying, hey, check your mind out the door. I want you to think. I want you to wrestle. I want you to fight for him. I want you to come into that place of saying, God, who are you? I want to know you. And we want to know him tonight. So Abram fought for that faith in a couple of ways. But you can say it simply this way. Abram sought out his answer. Abram sought out his answer. He first presses the issue to God. I mean, it's just simple. I mean, it's so simple, and yet it's so profound in its implications. He just pressed the issue. God, 
I don't know if I trust you yet. God, I want an answer. Most of the world works this way. God, if you want my attention, you know where I am, you can change my mind. That's the way most of the world works, right? Which is why most of the world, to be honest, doesn't get the answer they're looking for. God, I'm here. Prove it. In my worldview, in my convictions, in the way that I want to live my life. If you want to move me from my position, fine, do it. And God's like, I love you too much to force that on you. If you don't want me, I'm not going to force that. But when someone will come up to God and say, God, I, I don't know. But if you are really who you say you are, I will, I will bend my knee. I will, I will trust you. I will submit my life to you. You know, there's, we just got done with Easter, right, last week, and this whole account. It's, it's funny, when we, were, when we read the story of Easter, we always get into the account of, of the disciples and, they, and their doubts, right? They're not convinced. The women see Jesus, they see the empty tomb, they go tell the disciples. The disciples are like, we're not convinced. You have some kind of, like, grief hallucination or some kind of, you know, psychological break. Or we don't know what happened, but we don't trust you. We don't believe you. And this one guy poor guy, he said one thing that everybody was thinking, and for all of Christendom, he is now known as Doubting Thomas, right? But he was doubting. God, I don't, I don't trust this account. He said, I have, to, I have to see Jesus. I have to see proof. I have to be convinced. And yet, on the other side, we have this other group of people, the Pharisees, and they also were doubting. And they came up to Jesus and said, hey, give us a sign. Prove to us. Prove it. The funny thing is, is that Jesus showed up to Thomas and let him see him and let him touch him and let him, you know, see the marks in his hands and on his side. But he did nothing for the Pharisees. He said, all I'm going to give you is the sign of the resurrection and you're not going to believe in anyways. I'm not giving you anything. Why the difference? So one was a humble attitude that said, if you are real, I'm going to bow. The other is an attitude that says, I am unchangeable unless you change me. One is a proud stance, one is a humble stance. And to those who are humble, say, God, I want to know, but I'm not going to just move out of blindness. God's like, okay, I'll, I'll answer that. I'm just reading in my, in my Bible reading right now the story of Gideon. We'll actually get to Gideon in a couple of weeks. But he, he's uncertain, right? And so he, he asks God for a sign. He says, God, you know, would you be able to do something for me? I'm going to put out a fleece like a sheepskin on the ground, and tomorrow could the sheepskin be wet and the ground around it dry? And it happens, and he's like, ah, maybe it was just kind of a strange night. He, he says, God, could you do it again? Could you make it opposite? Could you make the ground around it wet with dew and the sheepskin dry? And then God does that. God answers that. Now, the Bible says, don't test the Lord. So how do we, con you know, how do we consolidate those two? We say in the, in the outpost, sometimes a little maxim that we use is, have a critical mind, but don't have a critical spirit. The Pharisees had a critical spirit, and they said, we will not be convinced. We are in judgment over you. And yet, the critical mind says, I'm, I just need some help here. I need some answers here. I'm wrestling through this. But the way that you find that isn't by standing back and saying, okay, just figure it out. You have to fight for your answer. You need to step out. And Abram stepped out and said, God, I need help. You know, I was, I was reading this semester the story of, of the start of YWAM, which is this big missions organization, kind of fun side note, it actually has history with Chi Alpha, but um, the author, the guy who started it, Lauren Cunningham, 
they felt like they were sensing the Lord tell them that they needed to start a mercy ship ministry, where they were going to buy like a massive ship, retrofit it to basically be a hospital on the ocean. They were going to go into ports around the world in third uh, and real poor countries and do medical missions and then do outreach and ministry at the same time. They were uncertain, though, whether or not this was from the Lord. So they said, God, we, we feel like this is from you. We're going to act if this is from you, but we, we need a little more confirmation. So they began, what did they do? They stepped out. They did an all-night, like, 24-hour prayer vigil or something. And they, they got their core leadership, and they said, we're just going to pray all night, and we're just going to seek the Lord. In the middle of their prayer vigil, a guy, it's a crazy story, but it's actually the account of the start of YWAM. The guy knocked on the door in the middle of their prayer vigil. They answer the door, and there is a, a um, deep-sea captain at the door saying, I don't know why I'm here. The Lord has told me I have to come to this house, and he has been like bugging me until I do this. Why am I here? And they're like, because we have a job for you to do, right? Like, because, you know, and so, but what did they have to do? They didn't get the answer just because they're like, well, God, if you want that to happen, okay, just convince us. No, they began to seek it out. They began to seek out the answer to their question. Have you sought out the answer to your question? Are you a critical spirit or a critical mind? Are you seeking, God, I will obey. I just need guidance. God, I, you know. Okay, so we'll get to that. Okay, so a couple of things, just real quick, a couple of things that we see. How did he step out? How did he seek out his answer? Well, one, we see him stepping out just in his, his uh, time, his focus, right? He goes, he goes and he spends it seems like kind of a while because he actually kind of even uh, takes a nap. Now, we're not sure from the passage whether that was because it was getting late or because it seems like maybe the Lord kind of did this for him. But, but he, he had this kind of vision state. But, but he, it seems like he was maybe waiting a while, right? Sometimes, sometimes we have to become desperate. In my experience, the, the revelation comes from... The desperation in our hearts. And desperation comes from the waiting, from the seeking. Until I'm like, God, yeah, I kind of care. No, God, I really care. No, God, I need an answer. Until we come to that place, God's like, I'm waiting for you to want it. Really want it. And sometimes that means he waits a little bit to give you that answer until you actually really want it. That's at least in my experience. I'm just saying that from personal experience. I've seen the Lord wait on me. To wait till I actually, my, the cry of my heart, God, I need an answer. And then he says, that's my cry too. So he, he waits. Now, he also sacrifices. I mean, these animals that he gives are not insignificant. At this time, in this place in history, this wasn't like chump change. I mean, this is a serious offering. So he, he, he bought in. He sold out to this. At some point, there's a bunch of uh, vultures or, or uh, animal birds that fly in to eat these carcasses and he has to shoo them away and sometimes we have to like be diligent right that the, there's going to be distractions there's going to be things that eat away at our seeking that distract us or or take away our pursuit of the lord and abram had to be diligent he had to seek out the lord he had to sacrifice he had to wait and in this he was seeking out the lord you know we have we have to seek out the Lord and if we're going to find an answer it's sort of like you know if I said for post post tonight I bought or I baked let's say I baked a bunch of you know funny enough I had a reputation as the best 
uh, Baker in Kayapa when I was a student, which my, li- my wife would laugh at me now because I like never bake. But, but I made these awesome chocolate chip cookies. And, um, and I was known for that actually in Kayapa. They always wanted me to make them. So if I said, hey, I just made a bunch of my like best chocolate chip cookies for Post Post, and you said, Nate, I don't know if I trust you. I don't know if I believe you. You don't seem quite reputable. I'm not really sure if I, but what, what happens, what would happen if you just said, I don't know if I trust you, after Outpost ends, you just walk out the door and never go and look? There, there might be, there might not be. You'll never know because you haven't sought the answer. You haven't stepped out. How have you stepped out? Some of you guys are like, God, I don't, I don't know if I trust you with my time and my energy, but you feel like the Lord's told you to do a missions trip, and now you're like, I need to step out and do the fundraising and see him provide. Right? Some of you guys are like, I don't know if I trust you with, with my career, but you need to step out and say, God, I'm going to look, I'm going to seek you out for what is your direction for my career. I, I will submit but I need to know. I need to see some direction. Have you had direction from the Lord? Have you been seeking him for direction? Have you been fighting for that? So many people, people say like, yeah, I want the Lord to give me direction. And yes, there's times it's like, God's just saying, just make a decision. But sometimes it's because we're full of questions because we haven't spent the time and energy to seek him out. And how often do we spend our faith not seeking him? And so not finding the answer. So we see Abram here, and he is seeking the Lord, and in this, he's finding his answer. Um, do what God tells you to do. That's, that's the other thing about Abram. I mean, this is kind of a nuanced point, but he, he responds to what the Lord told him. He stepped out. Because God said, hey, go get some animals. And Abram went and got the animals. He stepped out before he believed. He stepped out to see if God was faithful. Okay. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about Abram stepped out. He went and got these animals. He says, all right, God, I need to know. I'm going to wait, and I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to trust that this is going to tell me the answer to my question. What am I wrestling with? What are the doubts in my life? What is the question of my heart? God, I need an answer. I'm going to seek you out for that, and we need to do the same. So how does God answer Abram, what does God do? God signs. God signs. Meaning what? Meaning, Lindsay and I, uh, one, of the, one of the most um, annoying, frustrating things that you'll probably do as an adult uh, for a short period of time, like you and your spouse, will probably be trying to buy a house. It is a, it is a pain in the butt. But... But Lindsay and I have had opportunity to go through that successfully. Um, but at the end of the day, the last thing we do, everything is just conversations. Us and the bank and the you know, lending agent. But, but everything is just talk. How do I know that you're actually going to give me the money that I need for this house? And how do they know that I am going to commit to be faithful to pay that bill? Because we sign. And probably the longest, like, meeting I've ever had where I've had a sign. I just signed probably, like, 50 times. It's like every paragraph. Yes, I commit. Yes, I commit. Yes, I commit. And I can say the words. And in fact, 
we actually had a situation with one bank where they said verbally, yes, we can commit that we're going to give you this much money. But when it came down to the last hour, it, they almost couldn't because they couldn't sign. They couldn't commit on paper. There was this, there was this like legal contract that had, that had consequences if they didn't. And, and, you know, if I don't pay my mortgage, they get my house. And if, if they don't give me the loan, then they don't get my money on a monthly basis. They don't get the interest. There, you know, how do you know when somebody says, hey, I'm, I trust you, I commit to you, will you sign? And in this story, we see God answering Abram, and he's saying, I will sign. Um, now, in this story, we see at this time, it's interesting, God tells Abram, go get some animals. And it doesn't seem like God has to tell Abram what to do exactly. I mean, he just, Abram knows. He instantly goes out, gets some animals, uh, cuts them in half. It seems very strange to us, this whole thing. But, we, you know, he divides these pieces. Why? Because for him, he knows exactly what's happening. Like, this isn't strange to him. It's strange to us, modern people. But to him, this is like everybody in this place of the world, in this time in history, would have known exactly what was happening. We're about to start an oath covenant. We're about to create a covenant together. And so he goes and he gets these, these animals and he sets this whole thing up. And in this account, we see this, this commitment. Timothy Keller, talking about this account, highlights this is probably, he actually calls our form of, of commitment creation like wimpy compared to this account. Because what we see in this account is essentially people are saying, if I walk through the pieces, may this happen to me if I don't commit. May I be like this. May I be like these animals if I do not hold up to my end of the bargain. And Abram knows this is what's happening. And so he sets up this covenant ceremony. And then something very strange happens. There's this terrible darkness that, that falls over Abram. It's, it's a very strange passage trying to work through like exactly what is happening. Uh, we were actually, on Fridays, we do a little sermon prep for our Thursday night meetings. And so a lot of staff will come and kind of give their two cents to stuff. And we were looking at this passage. One of the guys was like, let me look at like the Greek and the original. Like what is, what is that? verbiage mean when it's talking about like this like this terrible and and kind of scary darkness and he's like oh it means terrible and scary darkness like it's just terrifying which sounds strange to us because we are so used to thinking of God we're so used to thinking of him as as our friend and that's good and that's right but if we minimize his otherliness in the process if we disconnect, if we start to say, well, he's our friend, so he's like our buddy, so he's kind of like our pal, so it's just kind of like our, you know, he's our chum. We lose the holiness. We lose the sense of grandeur, of otherliness. And there's, and there's kind of two things that we see in this moment. We see his otherliness and we see his justice. We see his otherliness. C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain highlights, uses a, a great analogy trying to really hone in on this he says suppose you were told there was a tiger in the next room you would know that you were in danger and would probably fear feel fear but if you were told there's a ghost in the next room and believed it you would feel indeed what is often called fear but of a different kind it would not be based on knowledge of danger for no one is primarily afraid of what a ghost may do to them 
but of the mere fact that it's a ghost. It's uncanny rather than dangerous. And the special kind of fear it excites may be called dread. But the uncanny one has reached the fringes of the numinous. And I'm talking about the numinous being this kind of experience of God. Now suppose that you were told simply, there is a mighty spirit in the room, and believed it. Your feelings would then be even less like the mere fear of danger, for the disturbance would be profound. You would feel wonder and a certain shrieking, a sense of inadequacy to cope with such a visitation and a prostration before it. An emotion which might be expressed in Shakespeare's words, under it, my genius is rebuked. This feeling may be described as awe, and the object excites as numinous. Tozer highlights in The Weight of Glory, he highlights something that's interesting about the patriarchs. Whenever they have these encounters with God, the, the manifest presence of God, the closer they would get to the presence of God, the more uncertain they seem to be in their language. I see this, I see that. I see something kind of like this, kind of like that. I see something, it's almost as if the, the closer they get to God, the more they're seeing his otherliness and the more uncertain they are. You know, C.S. Lewis actually in a different book highlights that oftentimes if we are talking about something we have not yet experienced, the only way we talk about it is by using other things that we have experienced that are similar. If you've never experienced an orange, you might say, well, it's kind of round and the same size as an apple. It's yellow, kind of like the sun. It, it's sour a little bit, sort of like, you know, and you, you start to use analogies, depending on how ripe it is maybe, but, you know, you start to use analogies that try to connect. But it's as if the closer you get to God, the, more, the less you have to even grasp from anything else. There's, le there's not even anything to reference it to. It's so unique unto itself, the otherliness and that sense of dread. But the other thing that seems to happen whenever we come close to the throne of God, whenever people experience the presence of God, was this other thing. The one thing through the cloud of uncertainty and, and the otherliness of his grandeur, his might, his power, his holiness, despite all of that, the thing that seems to come clearly into our minds is our contrast. The contrast of us to this otherliness. And what almost always seems to come out is this sense of justice. When Isaiah comes before the throne of God, in his account of the throne room, he says, Woe is me, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. When, when Peter first experienced Jesus' supernatural ability and power, he falls at his, on his face and says, Away from me, I am an ungodly man. The, ten, the temptation is for us to, to, to separate ourselves. In Re Revelation 1.17, John said, I fell at his feet like a dead man. But he placed his hand on me and said, do not be afraid. And that's what God all, will always do. He always comes in and says, don't be afraid. I'm taking care of it. I'm dealing with it. This, it's fine. But we have to realize there's this otherliness. There's this justice. And when we come in the presence of God, when I compare myself to someone else, I'm like, yeah, I'm not that bad. But when we compare ourselves to one who is so other, so grand, so beautiful, so beyond compare or imagination, we start to realize our inadequacy in that moment. And here is Abram, and he is seeing his inadequacy. But what, is, what happens next is fascinating. In the presence of God, we see Abraham sees the presence of God expressed now. Because it, he, he sees these kind of strange depictions. There's this 
uh, fire, there's this uh, uh, torch and there's this, this bowl and it's going through the pieces. And commentators all highlight the, the thing about this, whatever is going on here, is it is a clear depiction of God's presence. We see this later in the Exodus story where Israel would come up to Mount Sinai. Or when Israel would be led in the desert, a fire by day and a cloud by night. And the language in, in this, in the original ancient Hebrew, is very similar to that. That it's, it's a manifestation of God's presence, maybe shrouded, though we don't fully see his grandeur, but, but symbolically. And he's walking through the pieces. And it's fascinating because in the historical context, what would happen is you would set this up, may I be like one of these, right? And if, if you were creating a covenant, we know this from historical accounts, if you were creating a covenant with someone that was uh, higher than you, like a disproportionate connection, um, like a king to a servant or something like that, the servant would walk through the pieces. The king wouldn't have to. And if you were in equal footing, you would both walk through the pieces. But here is God, and two things happen here that we need to realize. Now, if, you ha- if you're not paying attention to anything else I'm talking about, pay attention for the next couple of minutes. This is, this is so important and so critical and so amazing. Here's the gospel. Because God walks through the pieces. He says, I'm committing. I'm signing. I'm walking through the pieces. And you can trust me, Abram, because I am saying, I, I am committing that much. I am that faithful. I am that true. That I am going to commit. I am going to model this to you, before you. And the king of the universe walks through the pieces. He doesn't have to, but he does. But the thing that's fascinating is Abram in that moment of experiencing the otherness of God and experiencing the power and the grandeur and the justice of God and realizing how far short he falls would have been full of dread in that moment because he would have realized if I walk through those pieces, I'm a dead man. I cannot commit to the level of commitment and devotion and trustworthiness that God is committing in this moment to me. Spock gave me a Scotty. Um, <sighs> praise Jesus. So, <laughs> but here is, here is God, and Abram is terrified because he doesn't know, I can't walk through these pieces. I am guaranteed to fall short of this kind of commitment. I am guaranteed to not measure up. I am guaranteed that I am going to screw this up and I am going to die. But then what happens? After God walks through the pieces, it's over. And, and what we see in this account is God saying, I am walking through the pieces for both of us. Abram never walked through the pieces. You know, it's one thing for Abram to say, God, I don't know if I trust you. But really, at the end of the day, what he's really saying is, God, I don't know if I trust me. I'm not sure if I'm faithful. I'm not sure that your goodness is going to be able to overcome my shortcomings, my inadequacies, my fear, my insecurity. My, I'm not sure that you can, I can, I can be trusted. And God said, if I'm unfaithful, may I be like, be like one of these. But if I am faithful, 
and you are unfaithful, may I still be like one of these. Now this is profound, but this would have been so shocking, not just in its strangeness, that who had ever heard of a God who would, will, would be willing to commit in this way? But not only is it strange, it would have been absolutely unbelievable to Abram's mind. Because think of this, how can God pay? God is committing in this moment, I will pay. There is guarantee, just as guaranteed as I am that I'm going to fall short in this moment. I, God is guaranteeing I'm going to pay, but how? How can the spiritual become physical? How can the immutable become immutable? How can the powerful become broken? How can God die? It's impossible. And now you start to see. And now you start to see. 2,000 years later from that moment, there's all kinds of symbolism. Jesus, like the three-year-old animals that Abram would bring, Jesus, three years with Israel, would be brought. And as Isaiah says, his body would be broken. And he would hang on the cross. And a great and powerful darkness, Mark talks about, would fall on the land. And the, and the curtain in the temple was divided where the presence of God resided and separated humanity from him would be torn from top to bottom. Because what he said was, I will pay. And he paid. He knew it from the moment. This was his plan. God, it was a guarantee. That's so, so crazy. It was a guarantee. I am going to die. That's what God is saying. It wasn't like a thought, a concept, a maybe. It was an absolute. And Abram realized it, and God realized it in that moment. I am starting a salvation story for you. And I'm going to die for it. And the only way that God could die is becoming a man. And even though Abraham maybe didn't even understand, he understood that this God loved him that much, that he was willing. Whether or not Abram fell short, nor whether God would fall short, and Abram realized that wasn't going to happen. But either case, this was going to happen. And this was going to be a commitment that God made. So we go back to the story in Romans, and it says, his faith, Abram's faith, was credited to him as righteousness. And it's kind of interesting, because righteousness, it's kind of a Christian term, like, who uses, what is righteousness? What does that mean? But what it essentially means is to be justified. It means that in the eyes of the court, you are good. In the eyes of the oath, of the contract, of the covenant, you've held up your end of the bargain. And, and how is Abram justified by faith? In Romans, it talks about Abram's faith. It was, Abram believed God, it was credited him as righteousness. It comes from the, the Genesis story. But how is that possible? How does Abram's insufficiency make him righteous? Because God paid, and Abram accepted it. Have you accepted? Have you taken hold of what God is offering? It's not enough to say, God, convince me. Or God, sure, whatever, you, whatever you've done is great. You can't accept it until you take hold of it. Have you taken hold of what God is offering to you? Have you stepped on it? Are you trusting him? Are you giving him what really matters? It's easy to believe that it doesn't matter. 
but one of the things is that, God, I believe in the things that really matter. The story of Abram is fascinating because in some ways it seems like, well, what does this have to do with me? It's a, it's a story about this guy who's getting land and a, and a legacy. And yet, whatever we're blessed with is always for some, somebody else. Whatever blessings God gives you is not for you, it's for someone else to be a blessing to. And other parts in the Genesis story, God says, hey, I'm going to do this for you. But it's so that you can bless, every nation in the world is going to be blessed by you. I'm going to emphasize what you're going to get out of it, because you have left your family and your land and your people for me. And I'm giving all those things back to you. But through that, I'm going to bless the nations. And we are right before God. We are justified in his eyes because he paid. Will you stand with me? Have we, like Abraham, believed? Have we leaned into the Lord in our lives, trusting him, not with the insignificant things, but with what really matters to us? Have we laid our doubts or fears before him? We fought for his persuasion in our lives. Stepping out in his promise to find him trustworthy. Have we given him room to show himself faithful? And if we're convinced of his faithfulness, have we taken hold of it? Have we given ourselves over in our situations to his guidance and his lordship? Where are you needing God to step in? So what we're going to do is we're just for a few minutes, we're going to do this thing. It's going to be real quick here. But I want you to get together with your small group. And if you don't have a small group tonight, just get in with some guys or some girls uh, around you and, and just step in. And small group leaders, uh, what I want you to do is, is I don't want this to be a, like a high-pressure thing or anything like that. But I just want you to ask, is there anybody here who wants, who needs prayer because they're, they're needing to trust God or needing to step out in some way? And in what way are you learning to step out in that thing that matters to you but it's a little bit scary? And maybe that's your life. Maybe you're saying, God, I just need to give you my life. This is the moment. I need to give you my life. I need to trust you and make you Lord of my life. Maybe it's in, in that you're saying, hey, I'm in this place right now, and I'm just kind of wrestling with, with insecurity or doubt about my future, about my life, about my situation, about my relationship, whatever it is. And small group leaders, I just want you to just take a minute, and we're going to do this real quick, but just say, is there anybody that would like prayer? And if you want prayer, there's, there's power in saying in the confession, God, I need you of stepping out and saying, God, I need you. And so small group leaders, I want you to do that. I want you to just pray for it. You can, you can guide it. You know, if you, if you just pray for anybody that you've got to like prayer or if you just want to like have everybody pray for something, that's fine. Either way. But we're just going to do this for a minute. Just go ahead and break out, spread out here for a minute. We're just going to do this for a few minutes and then we're going to go back into worship. But as we go, get with your guys, get with your girls and the point here is we are, we are saying, God, I need you. I'm pressing in to you where you are. Because as I step out, you step in. And in my doubt, in my uncertainty, in my insecurity, I'm going to say, God, I am trusting you to be trustworthy. So let's pray.